0: Hey everybody, it's Justin back with another episode, another mind numbing episode of Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. Today we got pretty good mystery for you. It is actually an episode about the disappearance of Laureen Ron. So for those of you who've never really heard of this missing person, it's kind of well known. It's starting to gain a little bit of steam in the podcast uh, community. This one is actually really interesting, grabbed my interest. I've actually been researching it here for a couple weeks, so anyway, let's go ahead and get started here. Laureen Ron was born on April 3rd, 1966. At the time of her disappearance she weighed about ninety pounds and was about five foot four inches tall. I'm not exactly sure how how that works out in the metric system. I really did not go that far to see. And basically our case begins. On April 26, 1980, in Manchester, New Hampshire, when Lorreen is at the age of about 14, Judith, her mom, Judith Ron, is dating a pro tennis player, apparently. She is going to leave town to see her boyfriend play in a tennis tournament. Now, usually, Lorene would always join her mother on these trips when she would go out of town to watch him play. Uh, On this particular time, she did not. It was spring break at her school, so she wanted to hang out with some friends, and her mother agreed. So, we have two friends that hang out with Laureen that night. Not 100% on their their names. Uh, They were minors at the time, so the names were never released. So, we're going to call one Janet Doe is a young lady and the other gentleman is going to be called uh john doe obviously so they're basically hanging out drinking wine and beer this is a straight up testimony from the two people who were there with her on the last day she was seen they're hanging out drinking beer drinking wine starts getting a little bit late well john doe thinks he hears voices out in the hallway So he freaks out and ends up leaving out the back door. They're in a third story apartment. This is a little bit contradictory on the street that she lived on on Merrimack Street in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. uh, I did a little Google search. There are a lot of three story apartments. There are actually triple-deckers there, too. Now, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Indiana, so we really don't see any of that stuff. But apparently on the East Coast, there's quite a bit of these what they call triple-deckers. And basically what they are is three little houses stacked up on top of each other. Now, I'm not sure what floor they lived on. Judging by the address, if it was a triple-decker house and you saw 239, you would probably assume they were on the second floor. But we're not too sure. Um, all we know is that John Doe, who was, like I said, also a minor, left out the back door when he freaked out. He thought it was uh, Lorene's mom coming home early. So he leaves out the back door and he specifically states in the police report that he heard Lorreen locking the door behind him. Uh, it's going to play a little bit of a role here in uh, just a second. Uh, I tried finding out what time... John Doe approximately left, and I could not really find anything on it, and that is actually from a lot of digging. So, with that being said, he specifically states he hears Lorene lock the door behind him after he leaves out the back door. I would assume, since there is a door, it's not a apartment building on a higher level, in which case it would be a fire escape, and he would probably be crawling out a window or something. So, Lorene and her uh, other guests are still there. They've been drinking a little bit, and they start feeling tired or whatever. So, Lorraine offers her bed to to Janet Doe, and she goes and lays down in Lorraine's bed. Lorraine takes a pillow and a blanket and says she's going to go sleep on the couch. Now, this is the last time that she is ever seen from that point on. Now, from the uh, New Hampshire Department of Justice, the Office of the Attorney General states that... On April 27th, 1980, at about, uh, 3.45 a.m., the Manchester police responded to the call that said there's a missing, uh, 14-year-old female. Loreen Ron's mother, Judith, had reported her gone. And she actually got home from the tennis tournament at about 1.15 a.m. Now, when she got home, here's where things start getting a little weird. She gets home and She notices that every single light in the apartment hallways are unscrewed, all the light bulbs. Now, this is not, the lights are broken, the fuse isn't turned off, they are unscrewed from the sockets. Obviously, she thinks that's a little bit weird. She goes to the front door of her apartment, and now judging from this, you would think it's some kind of, few apartments inside an actual building seeing as how the lights from the hallways were turned off there wouldn't be hallways if it was a a triple decker so she notices that the uh the front door is unsecured uh i heard two various reports that the front door is actually cracked open a little bit and i also heard not heard but saw a report that uh the front door was actually uh closed but unlocked so i'm not sure what to uh exactly take from that um, She comes in, she goes to Lorreen's bedroom, and notices a girl sleeping in the bedroom, who she assi- assumes is Lorene. Now, I don't know what prompted her to be still awake at 3.45. Maybe she was winding down from a long drive, something like that. I have no idea. But, that's when she actually goes into Lorreen's Laureen, room, and uh, checks on her a little bit more closely, and notices that it's Lorreen's friend, Janet Doe. Now, she says Where's Laureen? Janet or Janet Doe replies she got a pillow and a blanket and said she was going to sleep on the couch. Now she goes out into the into the living area and notice that the back door is wide open. Now how she didn't notice that when she actually got home, I do not know. Um you would think that unless it's around a corner or something like that, that uh, it would be pretty noticeable there were absolutely no signs of a struggle whatsoever. All her clothes, except for what she was wearing are still in the apartment and uh, her, a brand new pair of shoes that her mother had uh, recently bought her were actually still at the apartment as well. So the police go there and, uh, you know, start doing a little bit of investigating. Now the crack police work that the state of New Hampshire apparently does is They did not take this seriously right off the bat. They actually assumed she was just a runaway and really didn't uh, get into any details and probably missed out on a lot of good time that they could have spent. They always say that the first 48 hours are extremely crucial for any investigation, which, you know, you would have to agree with that. Well, apparently it took a few weeks for them to actually come to the conclusion that maybe there was some foul play Now, why the uh, light bulbs being unscrewed from sockets wouldn't maybe spark a little bit of interest is beyond me, okay? That's just ridiculous right there all in itself. There also had recently been another missing girl named uh, Rachel Garden who disappeared about four weeks before that from a town about 45 minutes away. That that's going to play into the theories a little bit later. We'll get back to that. Now, I don't think they really put two and two together, so they really didn't try to build any connection on that. But like I said, we'll get into the theories about she'll be in the theories later. What happens from here is absolutely nothing, okay? There's not really an investigation. She's actually considered a missing person at this point. There's no real leads, anything of that nature and uh all of a sudden, a few months later, actually it'd be more than a few months, but in October, she starts, well actually before this, she actually is receiving phone calls, okay, at roughly 3.45 in the morning. Now, why that would be the same time that the police called, I'm not sure, this is just what I read, read a couple various reports on this, so take it with a grain of salt, but the fact that Judith, Ron... Shortly after, within, I think, two or three weeks of her daughter's disappearance, was receiving phone calls at 3.45 a.m. very frequently. Now, the person on the other end of the phone wouldn't actually talk. They you couldn't even really hear them breathing. They would just be on the other line. They would be calling her. She was kind of getting a little bit freaked out by this. And in October, I think about the middle of October, she actually gets a phone bill. Judith Ron gets her phone bill. And she notices that there are some calls that are charged to her line. Now, this is where the case gets even, even stranger. There are three phone calls on her, uh, charged to her phone bill. Two of these phone calls are coming from a motel in Santa Monica to a motel in Santa Ana, California. The other phone call that was charged to her phone bill is to a teen sex assistance hotline. I don't know when the dates of the Santa Monica to the Santa Ana motels was, but I do know that the teen sex assistant or assistance phone call was on October 1st. Now, some of you probably don't remember, but before the golden age of cell phones, alright, you could place collect calls from landline to landline. When somebody was not on the other end to accept the charges, what you could do is you could actually take a PIN number, like you would, your family would have a PIN number that way if nobody was there to accept the charges, or if you weren't trying to call your specific landline, you would call the operator, tell them the number you wanted, give them the PIN, and uh, you would be able to call anybody you wanted anywhere you wanted and it would be charged to whoever's landline is associated with that pin number now you might think it's a coincidence personally i think one time might be a coincidence but three times within a few days of each other and judging by what happened and the phone calls early in the morning to judith ron i highly highly doubt that this is anything other than downright foul play something's going on okay judith ron actually received calls during the holidays as well now lorraine ron had a sister Uh, i'm not sure of her name for those of you wondering there's no real mention of her actual home life whether or not she was happy no mention of her dad anywhere so we'll just leave that out in the backfield not really touch on that until maybe part of the theories but now during the holidays uh, her sister reported getting a few phone calls where she could hear somebody breathing on the other end now you would think a missing missing teen girl you know by this point 14 15 years old on the other side of the country maybe went to call home maybe got into some trouble or something that probably wasn't all that good of an idea at the time you know you would think that she would you know maybe want to call home hear her family's voice whatnot the thing that bothers me is if you can trace a call from a motel in california to another motel in california using a PIN, why couldn't they trace where these calls were actually coming from Uh, i tried looking into that there's absolutely no mention of them really looking into any of this with that being said There is actually a small investigation. Uh, There is some cops, I believe. I don't know if they worked like interstate or if some investigators or detectives or whatever actually went to California. But they go out there and start investigating the two motels and the teen uh, sex assistance hotline company, whatever you want to call it. So they get out there. There's a guy who runs this hotline with his wife. Okay, he's a surgeon from uh, I think he's a plastic surgeon, not 100% on that, but he runs this teen sexist sex assistance hotline. Uh, he gets interviewed, has no idea, you know, I don't know anybody, but then he kind of defers and says, "Uh, well, there's a lady that works with my wife, fashion industry, that is actually in the porn industry as well, by the name of Annie Sprinkle. Now, Sprinkle, she used to be a really, really big porn star. She's actually a really huge, these days, she's really still in the industry, believe it or not. But she's a pretty big advocate for people who are trying to transition out of that lifestyle, you know, get healthy, clean, whatever, try to start a new life and all that stuff. So the cops are investigating this, and they think it's a little bit weird, you know, that this guy has no idea, but then says, hey, you know, this porn star works with my wife they do some uh fashion stuff together or whatever maybe she she you know she probably knows something about her and he actually states that uh this and sprinkle sometimes houses runaways how the hell this guy would know this i have no idea that's a little sketchy in my book on top of that they find out that the two motels where the calls were placed and received are pretty notorious for being involved and linked to the child porn industry in california ran by a man named dr z now i tried looking up some stuff on dr z let me tell you something i didn't really want to dig too deep because i don't want that kind of shit in the history on my computer you know what i mean but from all accounts, they, the investigators could not link anything from this doctor to his wife to Sprinkle to this Dr. Z, okay? Now, personally, I find it a little odd that there's a man who runs a teen sex assistance hotline who technically would be a surgeon... And, uh, is a doctor, alright, see my air quotations here, I know you can't see him, but he's a doctor, and it just so happens there's a guy, close by, who goes by the name Dr. Z, who is in the child porn industry. So, the cops go to interview this Annie Sprinkle, and instead of actually interviewing, interviewing her, I could not find any report on them actually interviewing her or even talking to her. what they do instead, being the awesome crack team of uh, Dick Tracy's that they are, they decide to watch a shit ton of Miss Sprinkle's pornos to see if they can spot her, meaning Loreen, in any of the porno movies. So, instead of actually going to Miss Sprinkle, which I'm sure they did, and she probably said, oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. And they're like, oh, okay, well, we're just going to watch a bunch of your porns, and if we see her, you're going to be in trouble. So, that's pretty much what they did. They watched a bunch of Miss Sprinkle's porn movies, thinking that apparently she might show up in one in the background or something. I don't know what they're... uh, what their train of thought on this was. But it was pretty much left at that. They could not find any link between Miss Sprinkle and uh Lori and Ron. Or the doctor. Or any of the child porn. Nothing links together. How that all pans out. You know we'll talk a little bit more about that into the theories. So about five years goes by. This would be about 1985. Judith Ron hires her own investigative team. They go out to California. And they do about the same investigation that whatever cops actually did out there. But at this point in time, they go to interview the, uh, the doctor who runs the teen sex hotline. And all of the sudden, he remembers that maybe there was a girl from New Hampshire that might have been around and to check with Miss Sprinkle again because, you know, she houses the runaways. Now, the guy didn't didn't remember it like six months after it happened but somehow five years later it suddenly dawns on him that oh yeah maybe i did uh, hear about a girl from new hampshire who was a runaway that lead got absolutely nowhere again uh so the cops pretty much retreat there's no real new evidence uh, going out to the west coast before we get to 1986 uh, something very curious happens john doe who was the young gentleman who was uh hanging out and partying with, uh, Lori and Ron the night she disappeared, commits suicide. Whether he had a troubled home life, whether he felt guilt about something that he knew had happened five years before, nobody really knows. There's no real info on anything about this kid. So, just keep that in your memory, Banks, for when we come to the, uh, to come to the theory section. But yes, the young gentleman who was there the night she disappeared and said that he specifically heard her lock the door behind him when he left, committed suicide five years after she disappeared. Now, in 1986, there's a phone call to a lady in uh, in Manchester, New Hampshire. The girl on the other end of the phone says her name is either Lori or Lorreen. The lady could not remember, and she was trying to get a hold of Somebody who she hadn't seen in a long time and used to be one of her boyfriends. And believe it or not, the lady couldn't remember really any of the conversation. There's no details on the conversation. That's the only tip that I got that I could really find. I don't know the dude's name. I don't know what he actually said about it. But yeah, in 1986, there was a phone call. And it was derived from California as well. That came in to Manchester, New Hampshire to a woman's house. You know, the girl on the other end of the phone said, Hey, my name's Lori or Lorreen, She couldn't really remember and was looking for this lady's son. And, of course, you know, he wasn't there. Phone got hung up. You know, that could have been a huge tip. Hard telling. But I wish people could remember phone conversations a little bit better. Probably could have solved this case by now. So, with that being said... For several, several years after Lorene's disappearance, Judith Ron receives phone calls regularly on holidays, and the person on the other end of the phone again would not say anything, they would just listen. To me that's it could be one of two things. It could be, you know, Lorreen maybe being too ashamed, she ran away. You know, wanted to be a big Hollywood actress, got caught up with the wrong people, could have been a very sick and twisted individual messing with the family. We really don't know because apparently they didn't know how to uh, trace phone calls back then, even though they can trace freaking collect calls. You know, I don't get it. The lack of investigation on this case is pretty much astounding, to be honest with you. But those are the facts about the case. Now I'm going to give you a couple little more tidbits of information here. Um, in my research, I actually found a post, uh, it was actually a reply on Reddit about this case, and the reply on this post was from a girl who claims to be the daughter of Janet Doe, the young girl who was with uh, Lori Ron that night, that she disappeared, who actually stayed at her house. They saying that you know every time her mom talked about it she would say pretty much exactly what was always you know in the papers or in the police report really wouldn't go into too much detail but apparently this girl's dad had a little bit more information and said that the night she disappeared they were with two other boys along with john doe now these two guys were 18 and 21 from what i understand the one guy worked at one of the stores close by and was actually the one that got them the alcohol just keep that in the memory bank that's gonna play a factor in the theories section here but i thought that personally was really really interesting that's a nice tidbit of information if it's true now I don't know why somebody would just randomly pop in and tell a total bullshit story and then leave her email. She actually left her email on this Reddit post to, if anybody had any questions or wanted to talk more about it, they were free to email her. Because uh, she apparently had a little bit information about this stuff. Or about this case, I should say. Uh, me, personally, I did not try to reach out to her. Uh, this post was from a few years ago. So... Yeah, no, I was kind of iffy on that. I don't want to ramble. I mean, my email is "Mysterious Circumstances 99 You know, somebody gets an email from that saying, hey, what do you know about Lori and Ron? You know, I don't want to freak anybody out. And hard telling whether or not it was true. So I did not bother reaching out to, to this person. Another little thing from 1976 until... You know, just up until a few years ago, there were, from what I understand, 11 unsolved disappearances around this area of New Hampshire. Now, 11 in roughly, you know, 30, 35 years, that's actually pretty good. Now, the weird part is, is that apparently three of these disappearances happened within six weeks from one another. Uh, the most notable one was... Would be Rachel Garden actually disappeared on March 20, 22nd, 1980, which was, you know, a little bit before it was almost damn near a month before uh, Loreen Ron did. She was from uh, Newton, I think it was Newton, New Hampshire, which was roughly, like I said, about 45 minutes away, 34 miles. It's about 45 minutes away to the east. The interesting part about this is Rachel Garden was fifteen years old, which is right around the same age of Lori and Ron and right about the same build. Rachel was five foot one, a hundred pounds. Lori and Ron was actually five foot four ninety pounds. And the craziest thing about it is if you look at a picture of these two side by side, they could be sisters. They look a lot alike. There is another report within I think about 2 weeks before or after those two disappearances of a woman named Denise Denault who was 26 years old. Now I tried looking for as much info on this one as I could and I really could not find any kind of information whatsoever so with literally no information on denise denal it's hard to say there might even be a connection with this uh unless i could see a picture see what she looked like this woman uh denise was actually 10 years older than these two girls so let's say a sex trafficking theory or something like that probably wouldn't hold much uh because of the because of the age difference usually you know if you're trying to traffic children you're not going to look for a 26 year old But, at the same time, it could be. Now, the interesting thing about Rachel Garden is that she was actually last seen talking to three guys who were fairly unsavory characters in the neighborhood, from what I understand. One of which, years later, was convicted of assault and rape. So, with that being said... You know, these were younger guys too. They were, I guess, they were between. These three guys were between the ages of 18 and 22. Maybe it's the same guys that were hanging out with Laureen that night. It's hard telling. Now, given all these facts and little tidbits of information, let's try to look at some theories. Uh, I'm going to go from probably, in my opinion, least plausible to most plausible. Now, the first theory that the cops obviously went with was the runaway factor. I find it really hard to believe that um, a 14-year-old girl, unless she had somehow met up with an older guy who who promised her the moon and stars and I'll buy you more clothes and I'll buy you another new pair of shoes, uh, I find it hard to believe that she would run away leaving everything. Uh, I think there's a chance she might have maybe left momentarily with the intention of coming back uh, very quickly and obviously never did come back. But I totally throw out the runaway theory. Uh, It's just too weird. And there's uh, with some of the details of the case, there's no real leg to stand on with the runaway theory uh, until there's more information maybe about her home life. Maybe her dad, you know, stuff like that that we don't know about. That's not public knowledge. I really don't think that she ran away at all. The next theory is that uh, she was kidnapped and murdered. I This is a very plausible theory. You know all the details of the case. I've told you everything that I know. Personally, I honestly don't think that she was murdered. I think she lived... For a while after she was abducted, uh, given the, f- the phone calls, that's just too weird. That is just too much of a coincidence. There is no way. Uh, I do think that she was abducted. If you're talking about a 5 foot 4, 90 pound girl, guy of average build, let's say 5'10", 175. I'm I'm five 5'10", 175 pounds. I could carry 90 pounds either across my shoulders and walk at a fairly regular pace from door to road is maybe like 10, 15 yards tops. You could do that in probably about 10 seconds. So the fact that, uh, when they came home to, you know, the light bulbs being unscrewed, there's only one reason for the light bulbs to be unscrewed. And that's for people to not see what the hell you're going to be doing to, you know, it, it suggests premeditation, basically. Um, there's not really too many theories going on here. I totally discount the runaway one, but if you want my personal opinion on a theory, foul play was there. I think earlier that day, I think the, the guys that bought them beer actually had something to do with that. And I think the younger John Doe actually might have known more than what he let on or, maybe even when he left out the back door left it unlocked on purpose i do think it was premeditated not not only because of the light bulbs but the fact that i think somebody knew her all right i don't i'm i don't know if they knew her for 6 months i don't know if they knew her for 12 hours i don't know but i think whoever took loraine ron knew her because of the fact that she usually goes out of town with her mom she's home alone with friends, she's drinking some beers, drinking some wine, getting a little fucked up. And that's the thing, too. Nobody ever said she was drunk. They all just said she was drinking. So she could have been fairly sober. Some people actually suggested that it was a uh, prank. You know, one of the theories, oh, well, the light bulbs are just unscrewed because it was a 14-year-old girl trying to play a prank, you know. And it's like, I could think of uh, a lot better pranks to pull than uh, unscrewing some light bulbs out in the hallway. All right. So basically what I think happened is... I think somebody knew she was home alone. It was totally premeditated. I think the light bulbs were unscrewed on purpose. I do get, kind of get the feeling that the, uh, the John Doe knew something about it, not just because of the suicide, but the way he left claiming that he heard voices. The other girl never said that she actually really heard anything, but apparently he did. Um, he left in quite the hurry. You know, maybe somebody knocked at the back door just after he left or something. And, uh, she might have thought it was him coming back, and maybe it was the older kids that bought her the beer, bought them the beer, uh, saying, hey, you know, let's, let's go somewhere and hang out. Whether or not, you know, these dudes knew child traffickers in California or not, I'm not too sure. That's one hole in my theory. But you never know. Stranger things have happened. But the chances of a random act like this the odds are just astronomical. Because, I mean, she's usually always with her mom when her mom leaves town. This is the one time that she's home alone with friends and drinking. So I think somebody knew her. Mom was not home. Knew pretty much how to talk her in, you know, to getting out of the house. I do think that the, uh, the Rachel Garden case, I do think those two are actually, uh, connected. Those are just two strange coincidences, very close to one another. I mean, these girls look a lot alike. If you're really interested in this case and you decide to look stuff up, it's pretty interesting. Um, same build, same hairstyle, same hair color. They look almost exactly alike. They're both 15, 14 years old. Uh, that's just too coincidental for me. And And I mean, they literally happened one month apart within a couple days. Uh, that's just too coincidental for me. I think, I think those two are connected. Now the Denise Denault one, there's actually no info on that, like I said, so I really can't bring her into the equation if there is maybe even a connection with that one. Uh, I do think Laureen made it to California. What happened after that, I am not too sure. Um Judith, Ron, actually remarried and moved to Florida. She actually received phone calls around the holidays for s- until she changed her phone number. I really don't think Judith was involved, obviously. I mean, you see parents of missing kids who literally will do everything in their power to either stay in the same house or keep the same phone number thinking that maybe one day their child is going to make contact with them. Yeah, I find it a little bit weird, but at the same time, you know, you got to you gotta let a grieving parent try to move on. You can't just remember the one bad thing that happened in, in one good young life. But uh, with that being said, that's pretty much all I got for you. It's a pretty strange case. There's little tidbits here and there that maybe don't make sense. But yeah, I do think the two disappearances were connected. Given the time frame, the appearance, height, weight, everything like that, I do think... I do think it was premeditated. I mean, I have no doubt about that. Trying to figure out something random like this. like, Because basically where I come with that is some people are like, well, they took out all, th- you know, they unscrewed all three, fo- all three floors of hallways, unscrewed every single light bulb. It's like trying to suggest that, well, I'm just going to grab the first person that walks out a door. Okay? I don't think that for shit. I think this was premeditated. Somebody either did that uh, during the day. Or actually, just before she might have been abducted, uh, I do like I said. I do think she made it to California. Now, one phone call from California could be a coincidence, but the three phone calls using Judith Ron's pin uh, in charge to her phone bill—that's just too coincidental. And that that includes all the phone calls of silence that uh, Judith received, and especially around the holidays. Now, like I said, this continued for several years until Judith remarried and actually moved to Florida and changed her number. So with that being said, there's all the facts, there's the case, and there's the theory, and then there's my opinion of what happened. If anybody has any any information on this case or might know something or, or anything, contact the correct authorities because from what I understand, uh, New Hampshire actually... I think it was in 2013 or 2012, actually started their police department in New Hampshire, I believe, or Newton, I can't remember which one, actually started a cold case unit, and I know that the uh, the Rachel Garden case actually recently got reopened within the last few years. I'm pretty sure the Laureen Ron case is still open, too. Now, there's a couple Jane Does that have wound up dead in the Southwest. I think one was in uh, Nevada and another one in Texas to where they actually thought that they were uh, Laureen Ron. But upon further evidence, she was actually ruled out. You never know. She could still be alive out there. She was born in 66, so, you know, that's, what, 50 years old? So, I mean, it's not unheard of that she could still be alive out there. But I will say this. I do think that the doctor had something to do with it. I think he deferred attention away from himself and his wife purposely. The fact that he's a doctor and there's an infamous child pornographer who calls himself Dr. Z. I think all that out there is just way too coincidental. Way too coincidental. Um, if it were me, I would uh, interrogate him. But there's the case. You guys wrap your heads around that. Lots of little theories. There's only probably about two or three good theories, but that's mine on what happened. Till the next case, I'll see you guys on the flip side. Have a good one.